And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my pal and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? And I am always well, John. And you are always well when we have Liverpool Football Club to talk about. They are your team. And we have been lucky enough to have a guest on to talk to us about where Liverpool are at this season. Uh, the famous Liverpool 2.0, Klopp's rebuild of that team. And we were able to talk to Josh Williams of Reach, who was very insightful into a lot of the tactical ideas that are being played over the last couple of seasons. You've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I mean, I, of course I enjoyed it. Josh is always great and as a Liverpool fan... Uh, I very much enjoyed that conversation. But I think, you know, the interesting thing is, especially coming into the season for Liverpool, was that new midfield, right? With, with Oxley Chamberlain, Henderson, Fabinho all leaving. They bring in Gravenberch, Alexis McAllister, uh, Wataro Endu, and Dominic Sabaslai. It, it was interesting to see how they all fit together like a puzzle. We've seen uh, McAllister play in that sixth role, which. It's not really his best position, but they've made it work. And it's been interesting to hear Josh talk about how they've been able to to utilize McAllister in the sixth role while also bringing Trent Alexander-Arnold into that midfield as well as maybe two deep lying sixes. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. We spent a lot of time talking about the inversion of the fullback with Trent Alexander-Arnold coming inside. Lots of really interesting things to get our teeth into. And as always, the best thing for us to do is to just jump straight over into that conversation with Josh Williams. Last season was one of the worst full seasons that Liverpool have experienced under Jurgen Klopp. In the end, they did manage to drag themselves up to fifth place with an unbeaten run of 10 games to close out the season. But at that point, the consensus was clear. Liverpool needed a rebuild. Now, this summer, we saw the first steps in this rebuilding process as the clubs brought in four central midfielders to finally deal with a squad problem that has existed for a few seasons. But this is not simply about a change of personnel. We've also seen some tactical tweaks along the way, most notably a new role for Trent Alexander-Arnold. So what do we think of this new Liverpool? A Liverpool that some people are calling Liverpool 2.0. Well, fortunately, we're joined by someone who can help us tease out some of these issues. Josh Williams is a senior football journalist at Reach and regularly appears in the Liverpool Echo and also on the Anfield Rap and the Red Men TV. Basically, any Liverpool outlet that begins with the, as far as I can tell. Josh, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for getting me on, mate. This is uh, my TFO debut as well, so um, hopefully I'll put in a good performance. I have every confidence in you being able to do that. So let's get into things because today we are going to talk about Liverpool 2.0. We're going to break our time up into three different sections. So we're going to start off by looking, I'm afraid, back at last season. Um, We've got the benefit of hindsight. So we can talk a little bit about what we think it was that actually went wrong. Then we can move forward to this summer. What was the summer transfer strategy like and what happened behind the scenes at the club? And then finally, we will move forward to this season and start having that conversation about what Liverpool 2.0 looks like. So let's start by looking at last season which I'm sure is a season that you'd probably like to forget most of but time does give us a wonderful capacity to have a better vantage point to look back on things and get a clearer picture of what went on so sitting here and now the season after what would you say were the biggest problems that led to last season being a bit of a write-off for Liverpool? I think the the kind of headline would would be the midfield department really Um, it, it sounds a little bit simplistic to say that but Klopp went through a number of years at Liverpool while only really investing in his midfield at the very, very start. Um, apart from Thiago in the middle, that was kind of the only investment. And, and towards the end of our last great season, Thiago was kind of you know renowned among supporters as the, the shining light in the midfield department to the extent where when he didn't play, it was, it was kind of a different game for Liverpool. The control that Liverpool had over matches was very, very different. Um, I remember he was due to start in the final, one of the two finals against Chelsea, two domestic cups. And I think he got injured in one of the 
finals. I can't remember which one it was. He ends up not playing or not starting. And the, the, the impact they had on supporter belief before the game was just was just huge. So going into the summer after that, the onus was on Liverpool to to kind of reinforce that midfield department with a, with a few new faces. And Liverpool targeted Adeline Tuamani from AS Monaco. Seemed to throw Everton at him. But he ends up signing for Real Madrid. And around this summer, Michael Edwards kind of calls time on his Liverpool career. And the, the, I suppose the onus was kind of on Klopp a little bit more than ever to, um, to make transfer decisions, essentially. And given the kind of loyal person that he is, you know, he always has been throughout his career. You know, he's, he's remained loyal to all his contracts and things like that, very loyal to, to certain players. His kind of solution, it seems to be Klopp's, his, his solution to not land on Tuamani's signature was to basically present James Milner with a, with a one-year extension. I think Milner was around 36 at this point. So Liverpool then go into the season with kind of the same midfield department that played, I think, 63 games the previous season and, and almost won the quad. And very quickly, Liverpool just appeared shattered. I think Thiago got injured in the very first game of the season. We didn't have a proper pre-season, so the players looked like they were still playing from the end of last season almost. And I think that just had a real impact on Liverpool's ability to control games, gain a full hold over proceedings, represent Klopp's really demanding um, game. And on top of that, Liverpool obviously integrated a new a new forward by in Darwin Nunes, who was completely different. You know, I'm sure we'll touch on him, but he was completely different to the players that Liverpool had had before. Maybe demanded a bit more of a a bit, a bit of a different structure to thrive, and all of that kind of cocktail just combined basically to to impact Liverpool's performances on the pitch and, and ultimately a bit of a downfall, really. Hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned the midfield area in particular. Um, and that was something we talked about a lot on this channel. We made a ton of content looking at Liverpool's pressing in particular. So how impactful do you think the out-of-possession aspect of the game was to Liverpool's decline last season? Because you've already mentioned that a lot of that was down to the fact that players were, were, were starting to look burned out a little bit. Yeah, I think it was huge. I think, you know, going into the season, Sadio Mane left. He was always a big a, a big presence in Liverpool's press, you know, leading the line. And I think he was Klopp's first real proper signing um, from another club. So Mane leaves and, and Firmino, who's been the other, you know, key figure in, in Liverpool's press, the leader of Liverpool's line. Klopp's labelled them as the best offensive defender that he's ever seen in his life. Firmino kind of stops playing as much just through injuries and things like that and Nunes coming into the team. So by integrating Nunes and maybe Diaz in, in, in favour of, of Mane, um, Salah was obviously, you know, an ever-present but I think that kind of shift impacted Liverpool's compactness against the ball, particularly Nunes. I think Nunes is... I mean, he's inclined to drift towards goal, whereas Firmino is, is obviously inclined to drift in the opposite direction. So if Liverpool immediately lost the ball, most of the time they would be compact in the centre because of Firmino's tendencies, whereas Nunes always threatening on the shoulder, always on the last line. He... He impacted that, and Liverpool got opened up a lot more often. I think he was a bit more, um, a bit less calculating in the way he pressed. I think he is kind of education regarding that sort of thing. I'm not sure how great it's been. There was a point where Klopp labelled them as a racehorse um, against a against Fulham after the game, and that was not a compliment. That was that was in reference to Joe Polina being. I think Klopp labelled them as a connector who Liverpool kind of had to take care of. Nunes' job was to basically man-mark him. But whenever a Fulham centre-back was on the ball, Nunes would just kind of run at him and the ball would get played around him. It, it impacted Liverpool's defensive structure. So I think that definitely had an impact on, on, on Liverpool's game, just kind of the front press. And then beyond that, obviously, I was just touched on the midfield department with just just a load of players who were essentially over the hill, really. Um, Liverpool just played a gang of players who... The, the youngest lad in there was was twenty eight really. Um, Jordan Henderson was still kind of getting um, almost shoehorned into the team because he's, he's he was never the best when he got left out. Klopp's publicly said that you know he, he kind of kicks up a bit of a fuss. So yeah, all of that kind of impacted Liverpool's ability to to really press and and, and keep the ball in in the opposition's half for the, for most of the game. And 
you know, as, as these things tend to go, by the end of the season, people were looking at new narratives and looking at different reasons as to why Liverpool were struggling. And then the defenders started to get blamed. Everyone started pointing up Matip and Van Dijk not being the same. Gomez looked a shadow of himself. But by that point, everyone had kind of forgotten that the reason for that was was what was happening in front of them. And uh, this season, obviously, we'll touch on that, but this season, things have improved in that department. Hmm. It's interesting because we're talking here about Liverpool 2.0 and we'll, we'll talk about the ins and outs of that of that label later on. But I guess what I'm interested in particular is whether or not we've, the sort of tactical evolution that we're seeing happening um, over the last few seasons. Because whenever I talk about the unfolding of the Klopp era at Liverpool, I tend to spin this narrative about how Klopp arrives from the Bundesliga with this very heavy counter-pressing tendency and then he has to implement elements of control and creativity into a system to, to really challenge at the highest level. So we talk about the fullbacks, those the flying fullbacks that he had in Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson. Um, and then we talked to, as, as well about the, you know, the compromise that you have to make in terms of bringing in more technical midfielders like Thiago into the side and, and hoping that you're not going to break the, the press. I suppose what I'm interested in hearing from you is we've talked a lot about how, you know, this does feel like a, an end of the cycle for a squad of players. But do you think that there was actually a tactical element to this decline as well with the things that Liverpool were doing in the last few seasons which had stopped working so well and so Liverpool 2.0 is as much about bringing in new players as actually developing a new tactic to to be able to fit the the modern Premier League? I think personally I would put it mostly on the end of a a cycle for a group of players, personally. Um, I think the the kind of tactical element to it, the stylistic elements, if you want, attached to Klopp's game and how that's developed over the past couple of years, I would I would put a lot of that on on Pep Linders um, and and his his influence as Klopp's assistant. Like when when Joko Buvac left the club a couple of years back, that was a very mysterious period. Nobody still to this day knows exactly why that happened, but I think some of it was was down to just a bit of a clash with Linders, Linders growing in prominence, Buvatch almost appearing less needed potentially than before. And before too long, Linders became Klopp's replacement for Buvatch. And then on the back of that, Liverpool started to integrate um, just possession-based principles and, 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 and ability to build from the back that we hadn't previously seen, an ability to break down a block which we hadn't previously seen, and this this kind of um, this kind of coincided with with the, the rise of Linders, and and we know that now, for example, Linders is taking virtually all of the training sessions at, at Liverpool's Axa base. Klopp's kind of a, a bit more of a kind of Sir Alex Ferguson figure, maybe who's kind of a little bit more withdrawn, the face of the operation making big decisions, but the actual training ground stuff gets dictated by Linders, maybe. Linders is feeding his his um, scouting reports back to Jurgen Klopp. You know, he I've seen his reports on, on Luis Diaz, for example. Um, I think he had a bit of a say on, on Darwin Nunes coming in as well and, and Cody Gakpo and potentially Gravenberg. Um, so I think Linders has definitely had a quiet influence. And on top of this as well, by the way, obviously the current system that Liverpool are, are using with the ball was was Linda's idea. So in a way, this is Linda's system in a way. So it really is kind of like more of a two-man partnership than, than it ever has been. And I think tactically, the way in which Klopp's developed, it's just, it's been more like, if you, if you think of Jürgen Klopp's overall game, it, it's just over the years adopted more and more of Linda's into it to the extent where now I think it's a bit of a, not far off a 50-50 split really between the two of them. And in terms of the players, you know, it it was always previously a, a very industrious, almost relatively limited midfield department on, in a technical sense. At least Liverpool didn't really have midfielders who could who could really thrive in, inside a block and, and and receive the ball under pressure and things like that. And we we kind of had to find a way around that, and that was through initially, I believe, the signature of of Naby Keita, and then just through the injuries that he was picking up the Klopp's ability to rely on Keita to be a consistent presence just lessened over time. And as that was happening, the, the rise of Robertson and, and Alexander-Arnold was, was happening. They were playing every single week. So Klopp shifts a little bit towards that. But I think now, because the midfielders have kind of moved on, 
Liverpool have had a blank slate from which to move towards, uh, move move forward. And I think there's been a bit more of an emphasis than ever before on we need technicians in here because that's what we previously didn't have. And that's, again, I, I would be inclined to think Linders has had a bit of an influence on that. But what, what, when I say this as well, I want to be clear. Linders, by some sections of supporters, is viewed as a bit of a villain for some reason, a bit of like a... Like he was blamed for Liverpool's downfall last season, for example, by, by large sections of supporters. And a lot of it coincided with him releasing the book, which people didn't like. Funnily enough, the book was called Intensity, uh, which Liverpool lacked. But yeah, I, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't think Linders is a problem in any means. I think he's brilliant. But he's definitely grown in prominence on Merseyside. Hmm. Yeah, and that brings us nicely to the, the culmination of that period of decline last season, which came to an end when... Klopp via Pep Linders, as you've said, introduced this tactical shift which took most of us by surprise. And we're, of course, talking about the inversion of Trent Alexander-Arnold into central spaces through the build-up phase. So this first happened in the game versus Arsenal, which you ended up getting back into after going a couple of go go goals down. Uh, and then it carried you to an unbeaten run to the end of the Premier League season. So let's start off just with how surprised you were to see this tactical tweak from, from Liverpool. I was surprised at the time. I think a lot of that stemmed from the game that we decided to do it in. Obviously, I think Arsenal at the time were leading the Premier League. That's, that's a big surprise to to introduce in that game. I also, I've never really believed that the idea, the concept of an inverted fullback for some reason for me has just never been associated with, with, with Jürgen Klopp. It's always felt like, rightly or wrongly, it's always felt like a Pep Guardiola thing and, and they've always felt, for me, almost opposite ends of the scale in in, in many ways. So it made a lot more sense when it came out a couple of months later that it was Linda's idea. But generally, I think going into the game, Liverpool were eighth in the Premier League. I think the team had just lost three of the last four. So a change was in order and it, it needed to be a, a a bit of a an impactful change because by that point, Liverpool had made several tactical adjustments throughout the season to fix the problems that had happened. And none of them had really impacted anything. Like the initial one was moving towards a 4-4-2 against the ball. And that was to remove Trent from being part of the initial press. But it just didn't really have any impact on, on Liverpool's ability to, to regain the ball and Liverpool's ability to, to sustain pressure and stuff. So when it when it happened, when Liverpool adopted this kind of new idea for the game against Arsenal, having seen Arsenal use it and having seen... Manchester City use it and, and both teams thrive at the top of the league, specifically with a player like Haaland up front for City, who in my opinion is is tactically similar in terms of profile to a Darwin Nunes. I, I was excited by it. I was excited to see how it worked because Liverpool needed to address that kind of really open space in, in the middle of the park that, that was just getting attacked every, every single week by the looks of it. And, and Nunes didn't look like he had a had a home at the time. He looked a bit he was getting used on the flanks and things like that. And he was Liverpool's I think I think I'm right in saying record breaking transfer. So you, you kinda need to make that work. So yeah, I was excited at the time, but still a little bit surprised. Talk us through what it looks like from a tactical point of view. What is it that happens when Trent Alexander Arnold goes inside? So it's 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 fairly basic really when Liverpool are building from the back from the goalkeeper. Trent will move inside and play next to Liverpool six. The two number eights on the back of that will kind of drift higher and occupy final third spaces, really, with the right side at eight potentially in a little bit of a halfway point, kind of offering his help to the build-up if it's needed, but also offering the threat towards goal. And on top of that, the left-back. I mean, initially, it felt like the left-back was playing like a bit of a wide centre-back at times in typical Nathan Ake fashion, if you like, Ben White, similar. Um, but one of the crucial differences maybe with the way in which Liverpool have, have applied this this idea in comparison to an Arsenal or a Manchester City is Liverpool don't really have any 1v1 specialists in, in terms of like a Jeremy Doku or even like a Bukayo Saka or, or someone like that. Liverpool have forwards in my, in my opinion forwards who are goal obsessed and, and want to come inside and um want to get shots off and things like that and, and when it comes to facing up a man 1v1 I mean it's basically a flip of a coin as to whether they will actually beat that man even like a Mo Salah who feels really explosive and 
he scored many, many goals over the years where they've been like really, you know, creative individual runs. Salah in them wide 1v1s, a lot of the time just kind of gets the ball taken off him. Um, so because of that and, and the tendency of those players to come inside and score goals, the the left back has, has had to basically provide width a lot of the time. And, and, and that, that did suit Andy Robertson, to be fair to him, because he is a marathon man. He can run forever. He doesn't ever seem to get tired. So he could provide that kind of... He could almost occupy two spots on his own where he would never see him out of position. And sometimes he would be a wide centre-back and sometimes he would be the high-flying left-back that we that we knew initially when Liverpool won the league. So that was kind of how Liverpool's system initially worked. And I think over time it's, it's, it's developed a, a few additional layers maybe. Hmm. Let's talk about the, the upside of that. Uh, tweet because obviously it's it's produced a, a pretty impressive run from from Liverpool. What do you think that that tactical adjustment afforded Liverpool in terms of what they were trying to do in possession? Well, I think the crucial thing is if you look at Klopp's time at Liverpool, he's he's always had basically four bodies in the, in the middle of the park, and and initially he established that that group of four using three midfielders and a false nine and. As Nunes came in very quickly, it was apparent that Liverpool suddenly had three because Nunes was inclined to run away from the ball. So I think what this has done, is it's allowed Liverpool to establish that four once again, albeit in a different way, by, by Trent trucking inside from his right-back spot and, um, and establishing a four in there. So when Liverpool lose the ball, that compactness that, compactness that I referenced earlier is, is there again. So Liverpool can't immediately get cut open. So when the ball is is lost, there's an ability now to immediately regain that and start the next wave of attack, which which wasn't the case so much last season. And on the ball, it's just kind of it's allowed Curtis Jones in particular to thrive because he's a he's he's like a he's very much a technician in really small spaces, but he's not particularly expressive. He he likes to probe, he likes to keep the ball his, his ball retention is unbelievable. Um, and with having him in advanced areas, and he's used to playing in advanced areas, he's used to drifting that wide and, and rotating positions with Diaz as well. He's comfortable with that, given his experience as a wide forward for the academy and things. So it's allowed Curtis Jones to thrive. It's placed an emphasis on Curtis Jones' ability to go and press because he's got that license, because he's got a safety net behind him now. Um, and it's it's obviously offered Liverpool a bit of a solution when it comes to just building from the back and, and allowing Trent to play a bit more of a central role, allowing Trent to play passes almost in every direction, as opposed to previously when he was kind of exclusively aiming towards Robertson and Mane and, and Diaz, or if Diaz is playing over there. So it's definitely had an impact on Liverpool's game. Um, but I'm inclined to think, most people are looking at how it's impacted Liverpool's possession game, but for, for the most part, I think it was introduced just to stop that kind of, that, that real cut you know, cutting through Liverpool's shape right at the centre. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the downsides as well. You've mentioned already the big one of the big questions that is posed by this approach is where are you getting your your width from? You've talked about how Andy Robertson yeah. has been used subsequently. Um, you also mentioned Mohamed Salah because often when you play with an inverted fullback, you're obviously taking a wide player, moving them inside gives you nicer access to those wide forwards. But as you said, Mohamed Salah is not really like a, a winger, or a classic wide player. He's more of a, a player who you want to get in behind defences, running on a diagonal line to goal and, and scoring goals. Um, so how would you say that, that Liverpool have, have overcome that problem of, of where you're getting width from? Well, it's it's that's ongoing. It's it's I don't think it's fully solved yet. I think Robertson offers a lot of solutions with that just because of his ability to to do to occupy two spots almost. But he's obviously injured for he's been injured for about a month, I think, already, and I think he's gonna miss the rest of twenty twenty three really. Simicas has had a go at doing the same thing, but the difference with Simicas sounds really simple, but his recovery pace is just nowhere near as good. He's nowhere near as energetic, and he's a bit less, almost a bit less focused, a bit less, he's a bit more inclined to switch off at times. So, since Simicas has done it, there's been times where he's looked almost, well, basically out of position, and, we, and we've basically had a back two as opposed to a back three at times. Um, Against Luton, away from home, Klopp used Joe Gomez as as the left back, 
and we had basically a a, a back three of, of Gomez, Van Dijk, and I think it was it was Canato or Matip, I can't remember exactly who it was. But in that game, we, we basically had nobody overlapping. And even though we created a decent number of chances and, and probably enough to win the game, it felt like a sticky performance. It, it felt like a there was no fluidity, there was no rhythm. Um, it, it felt really weird, that game. And everyone, obviously everyone on the pitch was inverting. The only left footer on the pitch was Mo Salah, who is, is naturally inverting, as, as we know. So it's it, it's it's been a, a curious one in that sense. Um, and as you say, Salah is, is naturally inclined to come inside and, 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 and register goals, ideally. So far this season, he's been a bit more of a provider, potentially. He's already on six assists. His total last season was twelve, so he's kind of he's already halfway there, and I think a lot of them came early in the season. So Salah's become a bit more of a provider, a bit more in a, a bit more in the mould of his his Roma days potentially when he was feeding Nakaned and Jeho. Nunes is kind of occupying that role now, if you like. So it's it's definitely kind of a work in progress, and I don't think it necessarily benefits everybody, but it benefits. It's it's benefiting more players than 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 last season, for example, and I think especially. Having the option to completely rebuild your midfield department in in the summer just gone, it's allowed Liverpool to really make use of that as well. Hmm. I guess the other player we need to talk about is Trent Alexander-Arnold himself because he is the the main beneficiary of this. Uh, it, obviously, the biggest thing that's happened here is that we've we've taken a, a a fullback who generally has played as a flying fullback who likes to get into particularly half space areas, um, carry the ball into those areas, and make those really dangerous crosses and and. and generate chances in the way that we know that Trent Alexander-Arnold can. To what extent do you think he's been impacted by maybe having to play a little bit deeper in in, in the play? And yes, okay, still arriving in those half-space areas, but uh, arriving in a very different way in very different phases of the game. How, how do you think it's impacted him? Is there a downside for, for him, despite the fact that it obviously carries a lot of upsides for what he's good at? I think it's, it's largely benefited him. I think he's felt almost rejuvenated by the switch. I, th- I do think he sees himself as a kind of, as a midfielder personally. And as I said earlier, it, it's allowed him to, it's opened up passing, passing lanes for him. It's opened up passing options for him that weren't previously there. It's allowed Liverpool to basically cut straight through the middle at the drop of a hat because of Nunes' ability to run in behind and sensibility to find them. Um, it's, uh, it's still a bit of an issue uh, on the defensive side, simply because in transition, obviously Trent is is caught a little bit out of position if it considered he's technically a right back, and if that if Liverpool's initial press is beaten, a lot of opponents are targeting that side, and it feels like that's been a, a bit of a target for for years now. And even though this has been a bit of a strategic shift now in terms of shape, it's it's still just as much of a target as it was before, really. Some of that could just be due to Van Dijk playing on the left of Liverpool's defence. But I think a lot of it is to do with Trent occupying a different spot with the ball compared to without the ball. And opponents naturally wanting to use that space. Um, And Liverpool, I think one of the issues we've had compared to an Arsenal or a City, I think, is just general patience. I think, you know, Klopp has always been kind of a, a really direct coach in terms of front to back very quickly. Lots of verticality in there. And if you're occupying a completely new shape with the ball compared to without it, there has to be an element of patience in there to establish that kind of almost like a footing before you can then start being creative. And Liverpool, specifically early in the season, were kind of forcing the issue a little bit with that. I've got, I've got a quote, actually. There was, um, there was a game early in the season. Might have been against Villa at home. Liverpool beat Aston Villa 3-0. It was probably our best performance of the season and Klopp said after the game the mix in possession between control and direction was close to perfect that's how it felt we could use the formation today properly everybody wanted the ball or protected or showed or offered and I think previously specifically at the start it was very it was almost a bit too hectic it was Liverpool were too chaotic and I, I was putting a lot of that down to just the number of offensive profiles in there you didn't really have anybody Aside from the two centre halves, who were, um, who were actually going to think about what happens if we lose the ball, um, but I think gradually we're getting to grips with that. I really like that quote. Um, 
distinguishing between direction and control there because I think often when people talk about f uh, inverting fullbacks, as we've already alluded to, I think people automatically own think of, of someone like Pep Guardiola. Uh, and obviously that generated Ange Postacoglu's quote where where he was asked about inverting fullbacks and he was like, yeah, I'm just copying Pep, mate. Um, which is, you know, tongue-in-cheek because obviously the way that Postacoglu uses inverted fullbacks is very different to the way that, uh, that Pep Guardiola uses inverted fullbacks. Um, and to be honest, I think that um, when, when it comes to Pep, like the big focus for him is control. So in terms of control versus direction, um, Pep Guardiola likes to have uh, an in, a central midfielder, an extra central midfielder coming from the fullback position in order to be able to move the ball through the middle, uh, retain possession and get into settled possession in the opposition's half. Whereas I, I get the impression, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I get the impression that for uh, for managers like Postacoglu and, and Jurgen Klopp, it is more weighted towards that direction aspect. It's, it's about being able to get through opposition high presses and then arrive in the final third with a, a degree of momentum in order to be able to you know, utilise the, the dangerous attacking players that, that you have. So I'm, I'm interested to hear how you think stylistically this differs, this Klopp approach differs from the way that Pep Guardiola uses inverted fullbacks, because I don't think we talk about the stylistic differences between inverted fullbacks and their usages enough in football. Well, I think a lot of it is is due to just Trent as as the individual uh, and how he differs in comparison to a a John Stones or a Zinchenko or or whoever. He is he's growing in authority, and that that's an understatement understatement really in, in terms of his impact on Liverpool's game. Obviously, you've got the vice captaincy over the course of the summer. He's one of the what feels like one of the few players in the on the pitch now who has been there and done for Liverpool, even though he's only twenty five. Um. And that that kind of quote that I've just mentioned, it's it's a lot of that, a lot of the mix between um, direction and control is is decided by Trent. It's it's uh, like that Aston Villa game. Curiously, was probably Trent's best performance of the season, and right up there to be honest with one of the best performances I've ever seen him have, because he he got that fine balance so right, and I think he's a really curious profile in the sense that. If you think of a typical, like I'm going to read you another quote. This is a quote from Trent in a interview with Adam Bate for um, Sky Sports, and he said when he was asked about midfield, playing in midfield, he said, "I feel like I am able to dictate games in there. You get a lot more chances on the ball to dictate the tempo, dictate when and where we attack. Just that feeling of being in control of games." So that quote essentially suggests that Trent views himself as a bit of a controlling presence who's dictating Liverpool's game and, you know, in charge of rhythm and things like that. And and he's not wrong because he's he, he has assumed that that role. But then you, you also have to factor in then, and this is what makes Trent such a curious player, he's such a creative threat for Liverpool in terms of creating chances that in terms of also playing the last pass, he's that man too. So if you if you think of say for example in Manchester City, you basically have Rodri as the conductor, the controller, the dictator. You have Kevin De Bruyne as the player who plays the last pass. Kevin De Bruyne for that reason loses the ball a lot. Trent historically has lost the ball a lot. What makes Trent a really interesting player, especially for this role, is he seems to be aiming towards getting this balance of being Liverpool's controller, Liverpool's conductor, but also the most creative player on the pitch who's also setting up chances and get, getting that balance is really difficult but when he when he establishes it it looks like it looks against Aston Villa where he's absolutely in control of the game and he's capable of doing it he, he's such a special player but it's it's a I think I mean would you agree in, in the sense that that's, that feels like a relatively unique um, you know mix of qualities yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think that's. I think you've hit the nail on the head perfectly when you talk about the fact that, as I said before, what happened with Trent before was that you were getting him into those half spaces where he could be creative. And now what's happened is that you're trying to move him into that half space through a central channel rather than a wide channel. Um, and yeah, it's, it's it's like nothing else really that we've seen in terms of uh, the uses of, of, of inverted fullbacks precisely because of his, his profile in particular. And um, yeah, I, I think it's one... It's arguably one of the most fascinating tactical tweaks that we've seen 
in the last couple of years um, in, in elite football. And I think precisely because it is using a, a fairly tired trope at this point in inverted fullbacks, um, but using them in a different way. So, yeah, I've been fascinated to see how it's unfolded. And t- to be honest, probably I've probably been slightly biased against it because it did, didn't feel like it should work in a lot of respects. And so I, th- I think it's, it's um, certainly raised questions for myself about how I view the role of, of, of inverting fullbacks as well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I could talk about inverting fullbacks for the whole of this episode. And to be honest, we pretty much already have. We do need to move on and talk about uh, uh, other things. So let's just move on quickly uh, and cover the summer. Um, I'll, I'll maybe not go into as much detail as we were going to go into, but um, let's kick off with uh, uh, the the point that actually there's a lot going on at Liverpool in the background this um, summer. You've already mentioned some of these uh, factors because um, Liverpool lost Michael Edwards as their sporting director in the summer of 2022. And Michael Edwards was... Uh, often held up as the architect of of Liverpool's transformation under Jurgen Klopp, certainly from a squad-building point of view. His replacement, Julian Ward, only lasted a season, and then we got Jörg Schmatke coming in in July this season with Jurgen Klopp seemingly carrying a a bit more weight in terms of transfer decisions at this point, as you've already mentioned as well. How important do you think that this upheaval has been for Liverpool, bearing in mind the the fact that, as we've said, Michael Edwards was clearly foundational to to Liverpool's successes under Jurgen Klopp? How do you feel about the fact that your manager now seems to be a lot closer to a sporting director than than a a coach? Yeah, it's a a curious one to assess, to be honest, because obviously the typical sporting director is usually installed to look after the medium to long-term interests of the club, simply because the typical manager is in charge for at a push two years, two seasons. Klopp is kind of unique in that sense, considering he's now been in charge for, I think, around eight years, arguably longer than the typical sporting director. He doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. So he his presence has almost rendered the need for a sporting director as less important. And I think, given the nature of the way in which his role has developed as well, you know, with Linders, as I touched on earlier, it does feel a little bit almost like Klopp was becoming the sporting director a little bit and Linders has become the coach almost in a bit of a weird sort of way. 
Um, now, about Klopp's career, his recruitment, to be fair to him, has been outstanding. You know, we worked under Michael Zorch at um, Borussia Dortmund, so again, it's difficult to determine exactly who was responsible for what. But Klopp generally has been a really strategic recruiter, and he's, he's generally got it really right. Um, it's difficult to put how much of that is down to Michael Edwards. I mean, there's been a few stories over the years, like say, for example, Mo Salah was a, a, a Michael Edwards signing. Klopp at the time wanted Julian Brandt. He got talked out of it. Um, and the rest is history in that sense. Liverpool also over the summer lost Ian Graham and um, replaced him with, with Will Spearman. And on top of that, Fenway Sports Group kind of explored some form of sale, you know, which to me, especially with Graham leaving on top of that, kind of suggested that Liverpool's maybe data-driven identity was under threat a little bit. Maybe it was going to be a little bit more the coaches have got the keys now. The coaches are, are kind of determining who comes in and who goes out. And I think generally, modern times at least, if, if you look at that dynamic, it generally doesn't work particularly well. I mean, it's it feels like it's what Eric Ten Hag is currently doing at, at Manchester United. And he's, he's essentially signing every player under the sun who played for him at some point in his career. And I think... I saw a great quote a couple of months back, actually, on, on training ground guru. I can't remember exactly who said it. But it was along the lines of, you you don't sign the best players. You, you sign the best players that you know, the best players that you, you're aware of. And Liverpool, over the years, have been really aware, beyond the average, I think, in terms of picking up on these little gems. Obviously, they're fairly renowned players, but um, Liverpool have been able to pick up on that. And I, I put a lot of that down to the way in which the transfer committee, if you want, was kind of structured. So I was a little bit concerned going into the summer. And once we kind of started to, to target really offensive eights um, and we were kind of overlooking the need for a six, potentially, that again, that was a slight concern. And that, that felt like maybe if Edwards was in the room, Edwards would be saying, what about that? But that that's a complete guess. You know, it's difficult to determine. But so far, at least, it looks like... Once again, to be fair, Klopp has, has, has experienced a really solid window. And I think um, the last season when he opted to keep everybody, basically, after missing out on Chiumini, um that looks kind of like the only real major error that he's made in, in charge of Liverpool and maybe throughout his managerial career, really. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the lack of a, a classic six, as you say, because that's been the thing that is being talked about a lot. There's a lot of people saying, is Liverpool just a, a six away from, you know, being a real a, elite team again? Um, I, again, we can we can talk the, the cut and thrust of that, whether or not we think that they're there now as well. But what's your, what's your take on the six um, phenomenon in particular? Do, do Liverpool need a six? I think originally I was very much in the camp of we need a six to the extent where you maybe sacrifice a bit of quality to get in a player who is of the right profile. And I think one of the reasons I was maybe I, I was really strong on that is because the previous season, previous summer, Liverpool had kind of thrown all of their budgets at Darwin Nunes, who was quite clearly you know, a bit of an output merchant in terms of his, his underlying numbers and his natural ability to be a threat, to be a menace was, was quite clear. But in terms of the tactical fit, he put he he, he almost created a bit of a puzzle. For Klopp to solve, and it resulted in the team suffering a little bit. So going into this window, I was very much um, the the profile is more important than the quality of the player almost. Um, but since then, McAllister has inserted the role relatively strongly. I think I think he's done okay. I don't think he's lit up. You know, I don't think he's made headlines and like that. I think there's there's room for improvements. But he has made a difference and, and, and Klopp has been quick to talk down the introduction of a six using specifically the, the, the kind of narrative of introducing a player who just regains the ball but is a complete negative when you've got possession of the ball. I think he likes the idea that McAllister is another player, yet another player, who can play the last pass for Liverpool. He has done on a few occasions so far this season. He's just scored a 40-yarder against Fulham. You could argue the typical DM maybe wouldn't do that. Um, and I think it's less the case with Gravenberg, less the case with Soboslai. 
They are both very much vertical runners who want to come box to box to box for 90 minutes. McAllister is, to be fair to him, a bit more of a holding presence. He's a bit more of a cool, you know, doesn't that if he does too much running, you can see it. It's written all over his face. So he's not as much of an alien fit for the role, I think, as many people are painting. Um, and I think, again, given Liverpool's performances, I'm not actually sure that Liverpool will be any in any sort of rush to land and at a six, you know, I think if if someone like a Rice or a Rodri was available, I think that maybe be a bit different. But looking at the the state of the market, I don't think there's any glaring um, target that Liverpool have got there that they should chase. I think Liverpool will maybe just be patient in that sense. Hmm. In the end, as you've again alluded to, the 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 players that Liverpool are signing are are largely sort of similar profile midfielders um, so um, we've got you've already mentioned Soboslai Gravenberch and then we've got Wataru Endo as well um, how did you feel when you got to the end of the window and those were the four transfers that you'd made I was pleased in the sense that the the club's overwhelming weakness had been well and truly taken care of um, that was for, that was for definite you know a couple of years ago Liverpool had a bit of a shaky season I think we finished third, but at, at one point it was looking really shaky and I think this was during COVID, but the overwhelming reason at the time was because Liverpool didn't have a single centre-half, really. You know, Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip all suffered season and the injuries. The team fell off a cliff, shock, but people get to a point where they kind of forget about that almost um, and start just thinking Liverpool have just, are just in decline. So in that summer... Liverpool get Van Dijk back, get Gomez back, get Matip back and sign Canate. The following season, Everton's great, nearly win the quadruple. This season, it has been relatively similar in the sense that we had an overwhelming weakness. The midfield department was the problem, so Klopp allows five midfielders to go and gets him four. And the four that he got in were a lot closer to peak age, or three of them at least, um, a lot more available a lot more almost motivated considering they haven't actually done it at the highest level yet. So I was generally happy with, with, with what happened. My big concern, as I've just said, really was tactically, it felt like um, Klopp had maybe dedicated a lot of his budget towards the attacking side of the game, despite Liverpool always being relatively threatening. And it felt like the... the the, the strength without the ball maybe was a bit of an afterthought with just roughly... 16 million dedicated to, to Endo, who is uh, it was the only real defensive minded player in, of the four, really. Um, so that, that was my immediate concern, despite the fact that Liverpool had got in three at least very capable, really high ceiling midfielders. Um, but it's been interesting to just kind of take note of how it's played out since. We need to talk a little bit about Dominic Sobosloy because we've not talked about him really at all and he's probably been the standout of those of those transfers uh, I noticed in the BBC this this morning the uh, the noted Hungarian football pundit Abel Mazarosh uh, was <laughs> was writing about um uh, about Sobers like yeah saying that he's uh, approaching the realm of Puskas and others in that class but he's <laughs> he's been the real standout player for um for Liverpool this season uh, why do you think he's fit in so well well I think he's I think he's a, an absolute product of the Red Bull network for the start. He's um, he's come obviously out of um, Salzburg straight to Leipzig. That's kind of all he knows. And on top of that, he is just really, really industrious to the extent where he is basically on par with Jordan Henderson, I think, in that, in, in, in that department. It looks like you're watching Henderson without, without the ball in terms of his ability to cover ground his ability to, to get up and down the park without really suffering. Never really looks like he's blowing or anything like that. Um, but then on top of that, he's offered a, a degree of almost elegance on the ball and, and real technical expertise um, to the extent where early comparisons were made with, with Kevin De Bruyne in terms of just his ability to strike the ball. His set-piece deliveries, it's almost like a like a pitching wedge, like he's using a golf club or something like that. Like it's his ability to to really caress the ball in the right way, depending on whatever the pass need, whatever the ball needs to, to find its teammates or to find a back of net or whatever. He's just got that completely on the money. So he's the ultimate clock player in that sense because he's he's got that really industrious, intense nature 
against the ball. But then when he's got the ball at his feet, he's just really dangerous, really threatening. Got an eye for a pass, can deliver. Got the technique to deliver those passes. And he, a lot of players, when you think of that, if they're so intense against the ball, when they actually get the ball, because the pulse is so high, they 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 rush their next action, or they'll you know they'll make a silly silly error or something like that. But Sobos like just looks like a completely different player when he's got the ball at his feet compared to when he's defending. Uh, I think he's maybe not come off it, but I don't think he's been the player in the past couple of weeks that he had that he was at the very start. I'm not sure exactly why that is, you know. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. He's still only 22 years old, but the fact he was getting compared compared to Steven Gerrard early on as a player who just didn't seem to have a weakness, you know, it is testament to how to the start that he's made. Yeah, Stephen Gerrard certainly seems popular amongst Liverpool fans, yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> yeah, a good thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, let's just move on and, and talk quickly about the positions where you feel as though Liverpool could maybe have done better this, this summer. Obviously, if you're going to buy four players in, in similar area on the pitch, there's going to raise questions if there's any issues elsewhere about whether or not they should have uh, spent spent the money differently. What, what, what were the areas by the end of the window where you were like, oh, I'm a little bit nervous going into the, into the season with, with these weaknesses not addressed? The number six spot was the number one for me in terms of um, just Liverpool's ability to to get by with a midfield four of four players who who you could you could all you could all realistically play as a number ten and you wouldn't really think too much about it in terms of Akeus Jones, Sobuslai, Trent, McAllister, even Harvey Elliott. You know these, these are all really creative technicians if you want who, who, who like to occupy the final third and it felt like we were going to form a box midfield consisting of four of those players and what that would look like against the ball I, I was just not sure and I, just, I, I liked the idea of maybe being a bit yin-yang with that and, and, and offering a bit of a specialist in there who, who focuses primarily on regaining the ball but then I have to be fair since almost reconsidered that and, and, and realised the perks almost of having the last pass from everywhere and, and, and everybody being a threat, everyone being able to play, nobody really being able to be targeted in a technical sense as a as a weak point. Um and I think on top of that, the absence of a left footed centre back is is probably still there. Um I can see why Klopp didn't overly push it, considering Robertson I think is still only about twenty eight, still looks as, as energetic as ever. Simicas is, is a relatively decent backup, and we had Gerald Quanta there as well, who is a you know a, a really promising centre back waiting in the wings for an opportunity, and you obviously don't want to crowd that out. But despite how good Quanta's been, he's not left footed, um, and I think it would be nice in certain games for Liverpool to have the option of fielding a left footed centre back like an Ethan Aki. Or, or like a, a Josh Guardiol maybe who can who will want to tuck inside next to Virgil and and form a back three. Because even when Robertson does it, you you, you know that he just wants to go. He, he wants to be let off the leash. So Liverpool don't really have that profile. Yet they haven't had a left footed centre half since since Ragnar Clavan. So it's been quite a while. It hasn't really hurt us because Van Dyke's always occupied that spot. But now because it's forming a bit of a back three at times, maybe he'd want that introduced, but Going into the, the January window and, and, and next summer, it, it does feel really almost open for debate as to as to what Liverpool really need to improve. I think it's a difficult question at the moment, that one. Hmm. Well, let's move on to talk about this season, finally. Uh, the, the the topic of the, the episode being Liverpool 2.0, and we've uh, arrived there 50 minutes in, which is obviously my, my fault as a host. But um, we've as I said, talked about Liverpool team as Liverpool 2.0 this season. How do you feel about that label? Is it really a different enough Liverpool to deserve that label as a second version of, of what went before? Or is this simply an evolution of, of, of previous iterations of Liverpool? I think it is an, an appropriate label. And it's it's a narrative that's been really pushed, to be fair, by, by Klopp. I think he's deliberately pushed this narrative. I think he's almost viewed it as his responsibility to do so as the face of the operation. The message that he's wanted to get out there is that this is Liverpool starting again from scratch. Viewers in that way, essentially. Um, because there hasn't just been Liverpool 2.0, he's used Liverpool Reloaded. 
he's used new LFC. You know, he he's used a number of different terms, and for me, it's it's quite clearly been intentional. And as I said, I'm in favour of it, considering how tactically different this team is in terms of the specifically the dynamics with the ball. I think that's 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 the major difference. I think defensively, you know, when Liverpool don't regain it immediately, it, it is still very much a four-three-three on the defensive side, I suppose. But in terms of with the ball, it's it, it is very different. Um, completely different makeup. You've gone from a false nine to a poacher. You've gone from number eights who were primarily focused on providing a bit of a safety net and regaining the ball to number eights who were playing as technicians in the final third. You've gone from high flying fullbacks to inverted fullbacks, basically, or, or, or a wide centre back on the left side. So, tactically, in terms of the makeup of the team, it is completely different. So, um, I think the 2.0 kind of Nickname, if you want, is, is spot on, really. Hmm. Yeah, and what we've seen, I think, this season is Liverpool being very, very dangerous in attack again. Uh, and maybe some of those frailties in defence still existing, but maybe not being so much of an issue if if you're so comfortable at generating goals. So how do you feel about that as a, a mode of approaching the Premier League? Because I feel as though the Premier League at the top at the moment is very interesting insofar as we've got Arsenal who are at the other end of the spectrum to Liverpool, where it's like, Totally solid team. Don't ever look like they're going to concede, but questions about how they're going to generate goals. You then have Man City, who are obviously generally good at both of them, but they're on a little bit of a decline. And then you have Liverpool, who are just looking very hot on the attacking side of things. And then maybe some of the questions about the defensive side of things again. Is that the sort of position that you would rather be in, in in, in terms of being able to be reliant on your goal scorers? Well, it, it almost feels familiar, if I'm honest, because this is this is how Klopp constructed his original team on Merseyside. He very much focused on boosting the attacking side of the game above all else. Pep Linders, has, as previously said, the difference between a good team and a great team is the front three, I think. Um, and, you know, a lot of the budget initially was dedicated to offensive-minded players like an Oxley, Jamie Mane, Salah. Um, Wijnaldum even come from Newcastle with a fair few goals behind them and things like that and then it was Joel Matz upon a free transfer it was Ragnar Klavan for about 3 million it was Andy Robertson for about 8 million and it wasn't until Liverpool got to a point where it was kind of right what are the missing pieces of the puzzle here that Liverpool went and dedicated two world record transfer fees to Alisson Becker and Virgil van Dijk and Fabinho in the same summer Um so it feels like maybe that's potentially the plan once again in terms of Liverpool getting really good at everything they were good at previously and then maybe boosting the defence a little bit if if they need that. But I must say as well, I don't think Liverpool have been as defensively frail as as the narrative has suggested. Maybe I think we've went down to 10 men a fair bit, um, nine men on one occasion. I think Liverpool's initial ability to sustain pressure is really good at times. It's and, and the goalkeeper obviously is is for me the best in the world. But there's just been one or two openings usually in transition, um where Liverpool have kind of had, had one or two issues, but it's it's not in crazy in terms of in, in terms of working on it. And it's it's to be honest, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be completely against the idea of it being potentially solvable on the training ground really it's it, it doesn't feel like as much of a transfer window solution as Van Dijk and Allison clearly were there was no way in which Klopp could have solved that well I was going to jump over a question about the out of possession side of the game but you've baited me in so I'm going to I'm going to follow that up because I think um, one of the things that I've noticed just from some of the data and as you said the data is muddied by the fact that there's been I think over 180 minutes where you've been playing with a player down um, but it has looked a little bit as though you're less concerned this season to press um, opposition back lines when they're when they're in their build-up phase um, obviously Liverpool have always been a quite passive frontline press anyway in that they bait the press forward and then they they jump once the, the opposition are forced backwards um, so I think that that's worth noting but I wonder whether or not you thought that maybe Liverpool are going back towards that that early press that we saw where it was you you would have your front three they were quite passive um, often when you were playing with Firmino in the middle you were baiting those passes through into the central midfield areas which would then trigger a counter pressure and 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 an attempt to um, 
generate chaos really to the, to to then be able to ex- uh, exploit the space space that opens out. Do you think we're seeing a, a slightly different approach to the pressing this season? No, I think I think you're pretty much spot on with what you've shared. I think t- to an extent, it's it's been Liverpool going back in order to move forward in a way, um, because as you say, initially when Klopp was kind of installing his his pressing ways, it was very like. Not not a mid block necessarily, but it wasn't so much of a of a relentless high press, which is what the media would paint it as. Funnily enough, um, it was more of like Salamane and Firmino basically defending six players almost, and if if or five or six players, and if the ball got kind of progressed beyond them, it probably would be through the middle, and that was then where Liverpool's dogs were positioned, like a Henderson or a Wijnaldum or a Milner to just really put a foot in, hopefully regain the ball and then immediately create a chance. And I think Liverpool got to a point maybe during the evolution where it was like genuine peak Liverpool, where maybe the press got a little bit higher and maybe it was a bit more dominant because the team was just so familiar with playing with each other. The team was so good as an, as an 11 players that Liverpool's press got a little bit higher potentially. But I think now, just as a means of largely remaining compact, I think Liverpool have, have maybe rolled it back a little bit and went towards the kind of mid to high block where you are encouraging sides to to dare to play through the middle almost with with a view to Liverpool hopefully regaining the ball and I think there's been a bit more of an emphasis on the, the two eights to maybe move a little bit higher in their attempts to regain the ball. And I think a lot of that stems from just, if you look at Liverpool's front six now, front six players, arguably the best Presses the best ball winners in there are Curtis Jones and, and Dominic Sobosley. Whereas previously, Roberto Firmino was obviously a master at that. Sadio Mane really aggressive at putting a foot in and things. Now Nunes is certainly getting there, but he's not he's he's not that way inclined as much. And Luis Diaz similar really both certainly workers, but in terms of putting a foot in and regaining the ball, maybe you've got your strengths from from Jones and Sobosley in that sense now, and that's why there's been a bit of a shift. Hmm. Let's talk quickly just about the longevity of this team this season. Do you you're, you're obviously towards the top of the table right now? Do you expect to be in the same position by the time the, the the crunch comes at the end of the season? It's a difficult one to answer. That yeah, I've I've appeared on a few podcasts this season, and one of the recurring lines that I've that I've put out there is just that I'm finding it difficult to determine how good this team is, and that 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 is still the case. If I'm honest, I mean, the the table since Liverpool adopted this inverted fullback concept. Liverpool at top of it, 10 points above Arsenal, and I think a few points above Manchester City, having played one game more as it stands when I checked. Um, lost once, really, so far this season, and at that point, Liverpool had nine men, and Joel Matip scored the winner um, and in his own goal. So, Liverpool prove, right now at least, to be really difficult to beat, and as I said earlier, threats all over the pitch, the last pass from everywhere. Um, I think another additional strength maybe, sometimes a weakness, but I think a strength that you could maybe add in there is obviously Pep with Pep Guardiola. This is with his kind of box midfield if he wants. It's very players in fixed positions, essentially. Liverpool have been a lot more fluid with that, a lot more rotational with that. Trent can sometimes be the eight. Soboslai can sometimes be well, the inverted fullback, I suppose. Um, there's been times where Trent has, has popped up as a centre half. Again, if you want to, if you want to go back to that, that that would be Aston Villa. Joel Matip sometimes was playing as a right back, and Trent was playing as a centre half, or it looked like that on the ball. And as a result of that, he had a lot of time on the ball, um, and he and he, he's caused problems through that. So it's it's difficult to determine how good Liverpool are, but I mean, since April, it's it's. It's difficult to, to suggest that Liverpool aren't in contention for the title because since then, Liverpool are a title-winning form, you know, with points-wise and, and everything else, really. Hmm. Maybe one final question before we finish. You've already said it's very hard to determine how good this Liverpool team are, and I absolutely concur with that. I think what's happening is a nice mixture of sort of unique and uh, and big big enough changes that it's it's you know hard to put your finger on what how it's going to come out in the wash. Um, so maybe it's unfair of me to talk a little bit about the future um, and, and what you 
anticipate the future of Liverpool 2.0 to, to look like if it's hard enough to determine what it's like now but what's your take on on the future how do you see this this team going do you, what is there any areas where you kind of think this could be where we see these tactical evolutions coming from Klopp and Linders um, you've already mentioned that maybe we'll see um, a few transfers here and there just to bolster things but what what do you expect to see from uh, this Liverpool 2.0 in the next, next couple of seasons well, it's it's interesting to see to determine like how Klopp sees it in terms of development moving forward because there's there's lots of different ways he can go. He, he could get in an established natural six and and maybe go a little bit more, or maybe defensive is the word in in the middle of the park with a, with a specialist in there, but maybe then a bit less threatening. Um, the same applies to the left back spot with Robertson. Maybe you could get in someone like an like an Aki who, who would give you more defensive security, particularly in transition, but less going forward again. In terms of the, the wide players in, in this system, again, Liverpool don't really have wingers necessarily or or 1v1 specialists to, to very much forwards. Is that what Klopp wants? I mean, the, the attack, to be fair, feels locked down. The attack feels like the one area that is pretty much sorted, with the exception of Salah's uncertain future. Other than that... Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens there. And obviously Salah is kind of the only left footer, apart from Harvey Elliott, who Klopp sees as more of a midfielder. So if Salah gets replaced by a right-footed player, maybe that player would, would be inclined to stay wide a little bit more, hug the touchline, be a bit more of a winger. Um, I think Nunes is very much the future of this team in terms of his role as the number nine. I think he was telling that he got the number nine shirt and... The way in which Liverpool have developed in a tactical sense has allowed him to stay away from the ball and focus on what he's good at and basically be a poacher, be Liverpool's version of Haaland. Obviously, there's been a lot of criticism in there in terms of his his conversion rate, if you want. And I can understand why it certainly gets to a point where you're where you are like you need to be scoring them. But he's an absolute magnet for shots. I think he's top of the Premier League fairly comfortably for, for shots per 90, and, and I think that was the case last season as well. So he's a magnet in that sense. You want to play around that kind of player. So it's it's really exciting times. The the, the age of the of the group has, has come down a lot. Um, there's still a few pillars in there in terms of players who you feel can go again to one more league title, maybe in terms of Van Dijk and Allison and a, a Salah. Um, but in terms of the the developments and and what Liverpool will do in transfer windows moving forward, um how Klopp will interpret the tactical development of the team moving forward, whether Liverpool will go a little bit more defensive gradually because it's so offensive right now. It's it's really difficult to say at the minute, and but that's part of the reasons to why it's it's such a exciting, intriguing time to be a supporter. Yeah, and it's certainly an exciting, intriguing time to be an analyst as well, and I'm very much enjoying looking at how Liverpool are evolving. Yeah. Now, Josh, it's been so good having you on the show. I could have talked to you for uh, another half an hour at least. I mean, the amount of questions on the running order that we've just jumped over um, is testament to that. So thank you so much for coming on. If our listeners want to get hold of the stuff that you're putting out there, as I've mentioned in the intro, you're often seen in Reach publications such as the Liverpool Echo. You can also be heard or watched on the Anfield Rap or the Redmen TV as well. And on Twitter, you are at Distance Covered as well. So if people want to find your stuff, then they can head over there. But thank you so much for coming on today. No, thanks for getting me involved. Apologies for um, some of the long answers, maybe. But it's a, it's a topic that I'm obviously passionate about. And it's there's a lot of context in there that needs to be added. So, yeah, it's hard to be concise, but it's not always easy. Well, this podcast is all about long answers, so it's absolutely perfect from my point of view. But thanks again for coming on. Cheers, mate.